0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. This is a reading from First John chapter two, verses one through six. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of god is perfected by this we may know that we are in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked all right thank you barrett good morning everybody um All right, Uh, we are going to continue on in 1 John today, and we're in 1 John chapter 2. And uh, I usually have a schedule, but I've not put together a schedule for going through 1 John because I wanted to take my time. Um, And we get to this passage, and good grief, there's a whole lot. Kids, thank you. Uh, Elevate, uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade. If you would like to head out to Elevate and clear some space in here. I don't think there's EGC. Is there EGC? Somebody with knowledge, let me. No, no EGC. My son trying to dupe me. Um, all right. So usually it used to be when we would dismiss the uh, elevate, like the whole room would clear out and we'd have a lot more space. And it didn't seem like we made a dent this morning. Um, but here we are. So we're going to continue on in First John. There's a whole lot in here, um, and there might be some things that we don't address in here that this that this passage kind of uh, brings up. And uh, if you want to talk more about that, uh, I would encourage you. Jeremy just mentioned the app. If you want to send a note to the elders, if you want to get together and talk over coffee, if you want to hear some various things on here, let me know. Um, but we're going we're gonna to tackle as much as we can. Uh, one of my favorite comedians as of late is uh, Nate Bargetti I'm sure several of you have watched Nate Bargetsy and And if you know him at all, he's pretty clean. He's got a couple of Netflix specials. Uh, and and he uh, he's very dry sense of humor, and, and, and I love that. One of the stories he tells, uh, it's probably his most popular story, is uh, in, in ordering coffee. Uh, if, you, if you've heard him at all, you've probably heard him tell this story. Uh, and the drink that he started to order was iced coffee with milk. Now, if you've ever been, do you remember the first time you ever went to like a, a fancy coffee place? For some of you, Starbucks has existed your whole life and you're like, what are you talking about fancy? Um, But for others of us, uh, coffee went from like like waitresses who would start about five feet away from the table and start the pour and manage to nail your mug every time with just black coffee. And then it got fancy. And like you walk into a place, they don't even use English for the sizes anymore. And there's like 10 different ingredients you have to order. And not only that, but they don't even pronounce the whole ingredient. They're all abbreviated somehow. And so it ge- is it intimidating, is what I'm saying. And so Nate Bargetti tells a story of ordering, uh, he would order iced coffee with milk. And he said, have you ever, have you ever, you, you place an order and you're not sure that they understood you, but it's too late because you're both touching the credit card. And so he's like, let's see what he thinks he heard. Uh, and so... He goes to the end of the counter, they call his name, and he goes up and he gets iced milk. And he go and, and his response is, thank thanks for this that I've with a straw, even that I haven't done since maybe I was eight years old. And now and you put it in a clear cup, so now I can walk around with other adults that I don't know and drink iced milk through a straw in the middle of this place where everybody can now see me. It's like, what kind of psycho do you think I am? Uh this morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, and what John is going to tell us this morning is he's going to try to clear up maybe some confusion. A couple of weeks ago, uh, for the last couple of weeks we've been in 1 John chapter 1, uh, and there's some things in there where he's like, uh, he, he is saying, you can't say that you don't have sin. If you say you don't have sin, you're lying. You're making God out to be a liar. But but, it, but he's also saying, here's what I'm not saying. Uh, and so he's trying to clear things up for the church so that they're not confused as what he's talking about. He's trying to get their order straight. There's lots of false teachings going on in this time. There's lots of false teachings throughout the church in Ephesus, throughout the New Testament church, and there's lots of things that he is trying to straighten out. Um, and one of the questions, we can see by what John is addressing, what some of the questions are that are being asked in this church. And one of the questions, obviously, is this, well, how can I know if I'm, truly saved? And what is the deal with sin? And what if I do sin? And if I'm saved, does sin even matter anymore? Can I just do what I want? And, and then if I am saved, and so we're not try, supposed to sin, then what, what are we supposed to do? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And the great news is he's going to address all of these. But this morning, he is going to kind of clear some things up. He seeks to address all this. He seeks to calm some of the fears and give guidance on the so what? Now what do we do Uh, And so with that, we're going to dive into this passage and look at what John's trying to tell us, make sure that we are gaining more of an understanding. And I love how he starts this, this passage here. John is a little bit older, and he starts with my little children. This is so pastoral. This is not condescending. This is affection. John loves this church. He loves these people he has a heart for them. He sees them as his children in the faith, and it's so pastoral. He's writing as a father figure, deeply concerned for the struggle that his spiritual children are enduring while their faith is being manipulated and tested and tried. And then he seeks to kind of clear things up. He says, I'm, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. John, What, what John is saying here is, is kind of this let me tell you what I'm not saying, which I appreciate greatly because I feel like I do that all the time. Paul, Paul's hard to read sometimes because he does that. He's like, I tell you this, not because of this or because of this, because this would lead to, and you're like, okay, Paul, get to it. John is here. He's telling us what he's not saying. This is, this is actually the same thing that Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 6 when he is talking about uh, how we are, how disobedience leads to death, but Christ's obedience leads to life. Uh, And so where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And then, then Paul follows that up with, so you may say, well, so then should we go on sinning, that grace may increase? By no means. This is what Paul is addressing. Paul's not, you know, sin increased, so grace increased all the more. Okay, so Paul, are you saying that we can just keep sinning? No, 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 no. And I'm thankful that Paul and John clear these things up. We live, we live in a world. uh, Man, we live in a tricky world. Um, And and the good news is, it's been tricky for a long time. And John is addressing false teaching in the church, and we are still addressing false teaching in the church. It's something that we just we get used to. Uh, In our world, in particular, there's a high value of authenticity. And listen, listen, I have a high value of authenticity. I think authenticity should be a high value. Sometimes we take that and we pit it against holiness. And I don't think authenticity should be pitted against holiness. I think true authenticity should be a part of holiness. Not authenticity that says I should be able to do whatever I want. This is who I really am. No, who you really are is created by God. That's who you really are. If you're saying I should be authentically fallen, then that's a different story. Um but we have this idea of when we're talking about grace, how do I know how do I the the what I was growing up it was how do I how do you know that you know that you know you know um, and when we're applying grace uh, it can be it can be uh, hard sometimes like confessing sin can be trendy and in vogue now right where we're confessing not not necessarily do anything about it but just just because we do it, certainly that's, that's there. That's out there. Um, and grace is not a license to sin. And so Paul's clearing this up. Grace is not a license to sin. There's different motives and trajectories when we're talking about grace and when we're talking about sin. If, if the motive of your heart is to know and trust Jesus, if that's there. My belief is that there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to have seasons where you nail it and things are good. Maybe there's a little element of pride seeping in that you have to address because things just go well and there's fruitfulness and you feel a sense of gratitude. And you're also going to have ceilings where you bl- uh, seasons where you blow it and where you mess up. But if the trajectory of your heart, if your desire is to know Jesus then I think there is grace upon grace. And I think as a church, we ought to to jump on board with that. We ought to be radically gracious when the trajectory is genuinely to know Jesus. We ought to be incredibly encouraging, maybe even scandalously encouraging, when when it's that motive. But there are other motives. Um... In the time of Christendom, Christendom began with Constantine, really, not, not fully, but it began to initiate with Constantine. And, and all of a sudden, after Constantine's reign in 350 AD, it, it went from there was less than 10% of, of the Roman Empire, or the uh, uh, Constantinian Empire was, um, uh, was Christian, to afterwards it was over 50%. And all of a sudden, for the first time in history, it, it ceased to cost you anything to be a public follower of Jesus, and in fact, it became culturally beneficial to be a follower of Jesus. And I think we could argue, uh, and probably should argue, that there are still some public benefits to declaring your faith in Jesus that are not necessarily in line with genuinely following Jesus. So we have kind of a cultural Christianity with Christendom. Um, and I remember, and... and so I remember growing up, when I was in high school, there a girl I went to high school with, and she told me that uh, she was going to walk the aisle, so for those of you who grew up in a Baptist church, get saved on Mother's Day as a gift to her mom. And I was in high school, and I was pretty dumb, but I, even then I was like, I don't know that that's what that is. Um, and, and listen, let me clarify here, okay? I have met people who have genuinely come to faith in Jesus at puppet shows uh, and at the power team. So all my cynicism has been destroyed by those things, and I know that God can work through anything. God can work through a guy, legitimately work through a guy tearing a phone book in half. And I, even though I don't want him to, he does work through that. Um, and so I have to submit that God can work through anything, but there is also a difference that there's, there can be a mentality that either either just doesn't care Or like, I walked an aisle and I'm good now. It doesn't matter. I'm in. I made a decision and I'm in. Um, And listen, that's not grace. That's enabling. And Jesus is not an enabler. John says in chapter 1, if you say you don't have sin, you're deceived, you're you're a liar. But he never says to be cool with that. He never says, so say you have sin and be like, eh. We all do. It's cool. That can be a comfort. Hey, look, we all sin. Okay? I get it. Christ's love is still for you, but it's not an enabler. Ah! You see the difference, right? Okay. The goal of following Jesus is not simply not to sin. The goal is to actually trust and love Jesus more and more and more. And the way that John wants to fan that into flame is to both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So he says, I'm writing to you so that you may know. You don't have to sin. You're not governed by that anymore. You're not ruled over that anymore. That is no longer your master, and and you can walk in holiness. And we say, okay, John, listen, I appreciate that, and that is hopeful, and that is helpful, and thank you for that. Um, But what happens if I do? What happens if I do sin, John? What's my hope then? And John says, I'm so glad you asked. Have I got some good news for you? If you do sin, when you do sin, I have great news. You have an advocate. This word advocate Corresponds with the Greek word parakletos, paraklete, the great helper, the one who comes alongside and walks alongside us. In this instance, it's being used in a legal setting. We need one to plead our case before the judge. We need a defense attorney. Now, your response to that might be, ugh, defense attorneys, they're dirty. All they do is they clear guilty people. Praise Jesus. our advocate before the judge God the father is Jesus the righteous Jesus both fully god and fully man the one who according to hebrews 4 we have uh, that he uh, uh, we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin so he is fit to stand as fully human before the throne of God because he is fully human. And yet, this is also, as John calls him, the life that was from the beginning, the word that was with God and was God and was made manifest to us, so he is fit to stand before the Father as God as well. He is our perfect advocate. And so we may say, well, why does this courtroom seem necessary? What, what's taking place here? All throughout the early church, they used the phrase, Jesus died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The word that John then uses here implies something more. It's a halasmos, that he is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. Now, that word contains a lot It's a lot. The early church was content, often, to say that Christ died for our sins, and they didn't spend a whole lot of time debating or discussing what that word for meant. But that word for is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Followers of Jesus throughout time and history have carried on a great deal of discussion about what all takes place in that word for? Not like outside of Scripture, but what is revealed in Scripture that that word for? What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? What is the transaction, really, that took place here? And the word propitiation, atonement, that carries a whole lot of, whole lot of connotation here. Um, and there are a number of different views of the atonement, and I think all, most of them if not all of them can be mined for good and helpful biblical truth and I also think that if we try to boil it down to one thing and ward off the rest as these are these are incomplete I don't think that is good precise theology I think that can actually miss the fullness of what all of scripture puts on display so um, all that is accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus the righteous, that John calls our propitiation. So we're going to get technical for, for a couple minutes, all right? Everybody okay with this? In through nose, out through mouth, right? Still lessons from Mr. Miyagi. Um, here we go. The mode of atonement. Atonement, basically, it's an English word that means at, literally at one meant. To reconcile, to bring, two, to bring back together, to make one. The, word, uh, the mode that we would hold as a baseline is called substitutionary atonement, that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. John Stott expresses it this way. He says, we believe that in and through Christ crucified, God substituted himself for us, bore our sins, dying in our place the death that we deserve to die in order that we might be restored to his favor and adopted into his family. Now, we don't say the word substitutionary atonement a lot, but we say that almost every week that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose again from the grave so that as it is with him, so will it be with those who trust in him. We have life because he was substituted. John Stott has another beautiful quote to this end. He says this, the concept of substitution, this is beautiful, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Now, there's an argument in our day that this is offensive. Now, this should not come as a surprise because the death of the God-man Jesus has always been offensive throughout history. There's always been a means to try to either manipulate or massage. That's what John is addressing in the first century, even in the church in Ephesus. Fleming Rutledge, who is an Episcopal priest... Uh, uh, currently, and she laments that it is not an exaggeration to say that in some circles there's been something resembling a campaign of intimidation so that those who cherish the idea that Jesus offered himself in our place have been made to feel that they are neo-crusaders prone to violence, oppressors of women and enablers of child abuse yes, this has been presented as divine child abuse in very progressive circles. Now, this is what I wrestle with as a pastor all the time. Uh, What do you say, when do you present competing views and discuss them? When do you present things that nobody in your congregation may have ever heard of? And when do you address them and how and why and all that kind of stuff? When do you talk about these things? Um, When I was a teenager, uh, when, when I was in youth group, everybody always gave the example of how do you know what's false? And they always gave the example of the Canadian Mounties. Anybody remember this? When the Canadian Mounties, when they would look for counterfeit bills, does anybody remember this at all? They would look for counterfeit bills by studying the real one. And they would study it so well that they would know anytime time that there was a counterfeit that would come. Now, listen, I think that's very good. I think we ought to study scripture. I think we ought to know scripture. We ought to know Scripture more than just our doctrine. If, if, our, if our doctrine that we hold is challenged, it ought to come from Scripture. It ought to line up with what we see in Scripture. And we can, and we can certainly entrust uh, a lot of this to God-fearing men and women that have known Jesus. We can stand on their shoulders in a lot of ways. And I think that's very important. Um, but it's also helpful to know that when there is a specific counterfeit that, that might sound compelling... It might, I think it's good to know to bring that to the light so that we can see it. I have many friends. Um, there are people that have left the church. There are people that have left the faith, not because of good arguments, but because of new arguments. Well, I never heard that before. That sounds compelling. And internally, I want to be, be like, it's not. It's not it's hard if not impossible Jesus never debates anybody back into the fold and it's hard and so I want to present this to you so that you can know what might be out there because it, it kills me um, and as, as an elder and pastor I am called Hebrews 13 uh, 17 I'm called to be accountable for what we teach and when an argument comes along that as theologian Michael Byrd refers to it is filled with so much straw that you could literally take the argument, put a costume on it, and audition for the role of the scarecrow in the Broadway production of The Wizard of Oz. But it sounds compelling, but I feel it necessary to at least make you aware. The way that this argument portrays the the triune God is, is off. It's wrong. That God is angry and vengeful, and that Jesus is just this quiet and simply compliant, powerless son. And you need to know that Jesus is not being forced against his will to the cross to simply appease the angry old man with an overactive rage. And any attempt to display God this way is counter to Scripture. Also, also, any neglect by those who would uphold this view of substitutionary atonement that at all allows any kind of, of brutal patriarchy or violence to flow out of the view of substitutionary atonement, that is also a grave misrepresentation of God and his character and of substitutionary atonement. So both sides are accountable for holding this well. Bruce McCormick, who is a professor at Princeton Seminary, puts it this way. He said, if the father were not mercifully inclined toward the human race all along, why would he have sent his only son into the world in the first place? Surely, a determination to be merciful and forgiving must precede and ground the sending of the son into the world to die in our place. Surely, forgiveness is not elicited from the Father begrudgingly by what Christ did on our behalf. It is rather effected by the Father in and through Christ's passion and death. So the picture of an angry God and Father and a gentle and self-sacrificial son who pays the ultimate price to effect an alteration in the father's mood and attitude, it just fails to hit the mark. What happens on the cross? The father sends the son, the son willingly goes to the cross, the spirit empowers him, and then the spirit raises him, the son mediates for the church, uh, and the father accepts those for whom the son died. Our glorious triune God at work in salvation of man and Christ's substitutionary atonement on our behalf. In chapter 4, John's going to even give us the motive of the atonement. Chapter 4, verse 10, John says this In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the motive of the Father, the architect of the atonement, is, of substitutionary atonement, is. Love, And it is the atonement to appease his own wrath against sin and death and destruction that destroys us. And he remains just. The willing obedience of the Son to accomplish the atonement is love. And the merciful application of the atonement to our hearts by the Holy Spirit in order that we might see and know and trust is Love. Now, I believe this mode of the atonement is good and necessary for faith and belief. It's critical to understand. But I also believe that it is not all. Okay. I don't believe that this is all that we need to know about the atonement. I do believe that there is more. And I don't believe that there is more I don't believe that this is an either-or. I believe that this is the genius of the and. I believe the atonement is also what's called recapitulation, that Jesus has relived and thus rewritten the story of Adam and of Israel. And where they both failed in their disobedience, Christ remained obedient, even unto death. He succeeds and defeats sin and death. The hope of Genesis 3.15, the curse given to the serpent and Satan himself, is this, that there will be an offspring, you will do battle again, and he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And the great news of that is, Christ's heel is healed. The serpent's head, not so much. There is also Christus exemplar. Christ's life and death provides an example for how we ought to live sacrificially. Certainly, certainly not to diminish the salvific work of Jesus on the cross. But that we are also called, and it it's thoroughly biblical, that we are called to follow and imitate the sacrificial love and life of Jesus. As John, as John so much tells us here in this passage, that is not workspace. And throughout the book of Acts, what you see most preached in the early church is not actually substitutionary atonement. But what is most preached in the early church is Christus victor. Jesus is king. He has defeated sin and death. He is victorious. John 3.8, 1 John 3.8, the reason Christ appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? And this might be, this idea of Christ as king might be the one ring that binds them all. His victory over sin and death is final and that has to include what he has accomplished to free us from our bondage and it gives ultimate conclusion that uh, to all that he has accomplished which is the resurrection, new life, the present yet coming kingdom where Christ reigns and will one day fully reign on earth as it is in heaven. And so all of these at work in all that Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, and glorious resurrection that tells us how, the how, the why, and the ultimate effect of the so what that the atonement has had on all things, which includes us and the devil and sin and death itself. This is all part of the grand story of God who created the world the way it should be. And when we, in Adam and then again in Israel, rebelled against God and the way he designed us to live, that Christ in his life and death and in his glorious resurrection, has relived this story in complete obedience, has set for us an example, has paid our debt, has ransomed us from captivity, has substituted himself in our place, has satisfied the wrath of God against sin and death, has fulfilled the legal demands of the law that stood against us in our sin, and he has risen victorious as king over death, over sin, over Satan. He sits as king on the throne, the earth, his footstool, He has established his coming kingdom where all things will be made right, including but not limited to us. Praise his glorious grace. So then, we're going to get back to practical. So then, how might you know that you know that you know that you have come to know him? How do you know that you are among those that one day will be made new on that great and glorious day? You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever struggled with this? you ever struggled with salvation? How do I know know I'm saved? Um, Now, there are a few ways that we contend with this, I think, in our day, that we wrestle with. How do I know that I'm saved? Um... And uh, let me tell you, I, I wrote this down, but I, uh, I don't think I have it in here. Um, too often in our day, I think we are preoccupied with heaven um, in, in a not good way. New Testament, you don't necessarily see this idea of trust Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die. You see the idea of trust Jesus, abide in him, give your life to him, and, and follow him. Now, I think ultimately that means go to heaven when you die. But you know what heaven is? Heaven is the presence of Jesus fully unfiltered. So if you don't like Jesus here, heaven is going to be hell. Um, So I think the way John puts this is, is better. Instead of saying, well, how do I know if I'm saved? Asking the question, how do I know if I have come to know him? I think that's a better question. I think that shapes up the question better. It's not about, how do I know if I'm going to get my reward? It's how do I know that I'm fully trusting Jesus, that his love is for me? So I think that we can and we are able and should be able to have confidence in the security of our salvation, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now, I want to caveat this a little bit with the danger of, of again, of Christian culture, that we might, be prete- uh, we might be tempted to presume salvation, right? Of course I'm saved. Of course, I'm saved. I live in St. Charles. Median income, God has been good to me. We're over here. We, we live the right way. We vote the right way. We act the right way. Of course. And I love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says there is never an of coarseness to salvation, there's always a sense of awe and wonder. And if, if there is something in you that says, well, Of course, I'm saved. That, I think, ought to be grounds for some self-examination. What does that mean? A genuine follower of Jesus, there is going to be a distinction from a cultural Christianity in that to understand our salvation is to be filled with a sense of awe and wonder that the God of the universe has taken my place, that he could love even me. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. As John, as uh, Charles Wesley put it, i got to hit the right key because this one is all over the place. This is the way Charles Wesley put it, my favorite hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, that he to death pursued. If you know the chorus, sing it. Amazing love, how can it be, thou my God should die for me. One more time. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yes, we can have confidence, but it must be in what Christ has done, and our confidence should be filled with awe and wonder. Now, I know that there are those who struggle with this. I struggle with this, that wrestle with the assurance of God's love for you. Perhaps it's toxic guilt or shame. Perhaps it is something that has been placed on your shoulders, uh, either in self-condemnation or by others, who you were never quite enough. And you spend more time considering how unworthy you are than you do on Christ's love for you. Not to be presumptive but i wonder i wonder if your wrestling could very well be the evidence of the holy spirit at work in you let me tell you why i say that i don't know that an unbeliever or someone who is unregenerate or someone who has not trusted jesus would struggle with that So if that could be, could drive into you a confidence. And listen, I have wrestled and do wrestle with with this. And yet I do believe that God's delight and joy for you and for me, for those who have trusted him, is to have confidence. Not presumption, but confidence in what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. This is not an arrogant entitlement, but this is a humble confidence. One of my favorite stories of all time, really, is the friendship between uh, former slave trader, uh, John Newton, uh, who, became, who met Jesus and became uh, an active abolitionist, and his friend, William Cooper. And we sing this song every once in a while. Uh, but William Cooper was often wrecked with depression and anxiety, and Cooper actually came to know Jesus in a mental asylum. You could not imagine, from what I've read, two more opposite personalities. Cooper continued to struggle with his faith under such oppression from his anxiety that he sought to hold the perfect faith. If I really trusted Jesus, I should, right? Anybody? And he felt so afflicted by this and so overwrought by all that he should be if he really trusted Jesus that he began to doubt his own salvation. He would sit for days in the bed and Newton would come to visit him. And eventually Newton wrote this song. He wrote the song, Pensive, Doubting, Fearful Heart, for his friend. And we sing it on occasion, and I can barely make it through the last verse without crying. I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it. This is what he writes for his friend. Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, comfortless a while thou art, do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy walls I will repair. Thou shalt be rebuilt anew. And in you it will appear what a God of love can do. For those who might struggle, I hope and pray that that struggle could actually drive in you a deep confidence that would probably not exist if you did not belong to Christ. That he who began a good work in you is indeed faithful to complete it. And to let that humble confidence compel you toward hope and toward healing that you would be able to say even to yourself, I am loved by God. contextually in first John, the arguments that had been going around about salvation. there was a common Gnostic practice. We had talked about Gnostic views the last few weeks and, and I think this is important that you could you could be spiritual and not religious right And the Gnostic view was really what was really important was this mystic encounter with a deity. Um, that you could have this this supernatural encounter and this supernatural experience and, or a word of knowledge that, that came from whatever this mystical thing was. And that was what is important. What wasn't important was any kind of moral uh, behavior that would follow that or be consistent with any kind of deity. Certainly in our day, we uh, we see a lot of that. Those cases are present in our world. We create our own versions of God. We give philosophical insight, have experiences, but it matters very little in how we live. On the other side of that, again, legalists, Legalists would value the moral behavior almost completely to the neglect of any kind of encounter or what John calls abiding with Jesus. Followers of Jesus, we are called to both, a personal relationship with Jesus and a corresponding desire and practice of following him. And so this week, uh, the practice for this week, and this this is... large. um, But the practice for this week, well, let me, okay, first, we ought to practice the ways of Jesus. We ought to walk in the way that he walked. We ought to abide with him and walk in the way that he walked. Now, let me say here again what John is not saying. John is not saying when he says, you'll know you've come to know him if you obey his commandments. Sometimes I think, you know, we think of When we think of obeying the commandments, we think of this. Obeying the commandments, summed up in the Law and the Prophets, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, your affections. Mind, your thoughts. Uh, Soul, your motives. Strength, your actions. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That involves loving your neighbor Jesus even says, loving your enemy. And I long for the day that that makes a political platform. Um, It won't. Uh, But he says, love them as much as you love yourself, which is actually also a call to have a good and proper view of yourself. This is not pride and arrogance, but to actually be kind to yourself. John is not saying here, that if you follow these commandments, you'll be a follower of Jesus. John is saying here, if you have come to know Jesus and love Jesus, you're going to love being with Jesus and you're going to delight to follow in his ways. And it's going to be a struggle because you're still working on putting off the old self and putting on the new self. But you are going to grow in in being with him and delighting in doing what he does. We're going to follow him. So... The practice for this week is kind of a a two-sided practice. First and foremost, to stop and consider the grace of Jesus. Consider what he has done. Read this passage over again. That he has taken your place, that he has put himself in your position so that you, by his free grace, might be placed in his position. Consider the free grace of Jesus. Recall this in the mornings. Talk about it when you get ready for bed. Think over the thought of what Christ has done as you sit at the lunch table. Make this a regular practice. And is there a sense of awe and wonder there? Have you placed your trust in the completed work of Jesus? Do you, I, I don't care if you identify as a Christian. Have you put your faith and trust in the completed work of Jesus? Do you abide with him? Do you delight in him? Do you follow him? And if the answer to that is no, if there's, a, if there's a, a prompting in your heart or in your spirit, if you're like, you know what? I don't know that I know Jesus. I don't know that I know what it is to find joy in him. I don't know that I know what it is to find life in him. I don't know that I've ever trusted him. Talk to somebody. We're not going to start you over at ground one to get our baptism numbers up. I want to promise you that. We're not going to manipulate We want you to know that you have come to know Jesus. To be gracious to yourself. If you're like, well, I don't know that I know Jesus because I cussed at work the other day. Grace upon grace. Okay? And look at the motives of your heart. Have I come to know him? And so then the kind of two ways. If If you have not, deal with that. Please deal with that. This is not something to take lightly. This is not something to throw off. This is... This is the meaning and purpose of the universe. Don't, don't be distracted from that with cat videos. And, and also, don't be, don't be distraught from that because of other followers of Jesus. There is a long track record of the followers of Jesus, of God's people messing up. And we carry that on really, really well. Okay, I'm talking about dealing with Jesus If you do follow him, if you are considering the grace of Jesus, then maybe just a simple self-examination. Do I tend more toward the abiding with Jesus, and I enjoy the times alone, and I enjoy reading scripture and studying scripture and knowing doctrine and being with him, and those are the things that I really delight in. The be, right? If we have the know, the be, and the do, and you look and you say, you know what, the be is my jam, and I love that, then let me ask you to consider what does it look like for you to then to also follow him? To do the things that Jesus did. To show incredible compassion and mercy. To advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. To be to be insanely generous with your time or your energy or your efforts or your finances. To be made uncomfortable by having conversations with people about spiritual things. And this is, I got this advice a long time ago, which I thought was really helpful. It's not necessarily telling other people what they should believe, but being able to convey what you believe. By listening to people that you may not listen to, by reaching out and, and serving. Martin Luther King said, anybody can be great because anybody can serve by sacrificially serving to do the things that Jesus has done. And if you're like, well, I don't know what Jesus has done. We have four great life stories told in different contexts for all that Christ has done. There is more on Jesus in the Bible than we have on really anybody else in all of antiquity. We get a pretty good idea. So to spend that time abiding, looking at the way Jesus acted, how did he interact with people, how did he talk with people, how did he comfort people that were socially outcast? On the other side, if that's your thing, if you have, if your thing is the do and you're standing up for the poor and the, the oppressed and you're putting together drives to end world hunger and you are standing against racism and, and you, are, you are moved by justice and you are moved uh, in those ways and you are sacrificial in your love for other people and that is just, that is your jam. And let me encourage you this week, and if you don't know which one you are, ask somebody close to you and they'll be able to tell you. Just be ready. But if that's your thing, this week, can you take some time to just sit? Can you take some time to abide? Can you let Jesus poke and say, listen, you're doing a lot and that's great? You have set up accountability you have you have done all of these things but can you just take a minute and sit with me over coffee can you read a psalm and just let it pour out from from me to you and wash over you can you abide with me sit with me can you do some massive forgiving can you look at the people that you have lumped together as one as one fell swoop of wickedness in the world and reach out and love them and maybe even sit with them and hear from them and counsel them and, and let that be an abiding with me. Can you reconsider my love for you? Can you slow down and, and be? Listen, John doesn't write to this first century church to send them into a tailspin. He doesn't write to them to say you may have thought you had it but I tell you, you really don't have it. And you got to do even more. He writes to them to comfort them My little children, the enemy is out to get you and out to send you into confusion. I am out to tell you that what Christ has done for you is miraculous. The Word made life that we have seen and touched and talked to. This is glorious. I want you to know. I want you to rest and trust. I want you to labor not to try to earn his favor, but because you have his favor. We may have confidence not in what we have done, but in what Christ has done, and that we may be able to abide with him and walk in the ways that he's walked. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved us. Thank you that you are victorious, that you've ransomed us, that you've taken our place, that you set an example for how we ought to live sacrificially in love and life. Um, You have not left us wanting. You have left us fulfilled. The enemy leaves us wanting and convinces us that we need to do more, that we need to be more that it's never enough. And Martin Luther would invite the enemy to pull up a chair and keep the accusations coming and say, I'm probably worse than that, and yet Christ has paid my debt. God, this week, be the lifter of our heads. For those who don't know you, I pray that you would send a gentle but convicting spirit into their hearts and minds that they would see your completed work and trust in you. For those that do know you, that you would send the Spirit to bring a gentle but convicting uh, word into our hearts and minds that we are yours and all that that means. That faithfulness is not an afterthought, it is a pursuit. It's not a when all else fails, well at least we can be faithful. It is a Prize to be sought after and given our lives to, to be faithful to the one who has called us. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.